0: On today's episode, we're gonna talk about Biden's impeachment. We're gonna talk about high profile meetings on Capitol Hill over AI. There was also a federal court ruling that Biden COVID officials violated the first amendment. And then we have some red states greenlighting a controversial curriculum at the K 12 level. All of this and more on the Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. Hello everyone, I'm Robbie Gupta.
1: And I'm Ricky Schlott.
0: All right, Ricky, the day has arrived. Justice will be done. McCarthy has announced the Biden impeachment inquiry. He was he was careful to note it's not mm-hmm. an impeachment proceeding, but they are. They're asking some questions, Ricky. What do you think is going to come of this?
1: I'm down to just ask questions, but um, yeah, he <laughs> launched this on Tuesday. Um, he says that there's, quote, serious, incredible allegations against Biden and that taken together these allegations paint a picture of a culture of corruption. I definitely agree with that. Um, I think that the biggest hurdle, again, is going to be connecting the dots directly to Biden, even though obviously someone very intimately close to him is is heavily implicated. Um, and one of the things that this is really kind of hinging on is the fact that a few things that Biden said in 2020 and in the election cycle about his personal involvement have since very evidently been disproven by discovery, by also um, Hunter's own testimony, including um, denying full stop that Hunter made any money in China, which Hunter has admitted to, and also denying that Biden had ever met his Ukrainian associates in business. So I think his own his own words are going to come back to bite him. But again, it's, we're kind of still in the same position as where we last left it. So there's there's still questions to be asked and questions to be answered.
0: Yeah, I continue to believe that. My question about this is, what does Congress have to offer that a the special counsel, who again was a Trump-appointed prosecutor who is now given special counsel status, like what is it that Congress can do that this prosecutor can't do and vice versa. I would actually say like the prosecutor has the standards of legal ethics, is not a, an elected official, doesn't have to worry about politics the same way. Congress, to me, the only thing they have to offer here is politics and that's a bad thing. And I think like when McCarthy was asked about this, he was clear to say there actually isn't any evidence of a crime. That Biden has committed right now, but that the goal is to see if there is evidence. Mace said the same thing. She said the key is to get the bank records. And I think what they're admitting is they actually don't have any evidence. And the thing that McCarthy was harping on in the interview I saw from him was this Ukrainian prosecutor, Viktor Shokin. So this is going back to Biden's time as vice president, by the way, which is all information that was known to the electorate when we ran and also that has been litigated in the public square and looked at by Senate Republicans before. And as a reminder to people, this was an incident where Biden, when he was vice president, was part of a coalition of US government officials and European officials who pressured the Ukrainian government to fire a prosecutor who they felt was weak on corruption. And people are trying to make this like it was if it was specific to Biden, but actually the EU diplomat to Ukraine, multiple diplomats. To Ukraine, civil society figures like Daria Kalyanuk, who's the co-founder and executive director of the Anti-Corruption Action Center in Ukraine, they all like civil society within Ukraine, diplomats in Europe and the United States, US government officials all agreed that this prosecutor was weak on corruption, potentially corrupt himself. They wanted Ukraine to get rid of him. They celebrated it when he got rid of them, rid of him. And now they're trying to make it about Hunter Biden, who, by the way, was didn't even join the board. Of uh, barisma until 2014, and the probe into Burisma that this prosecutor was doing was from before the time that Biden Hunter Biden was even on the board. So it wasn't even looking at Hunter Biden's conduct, and this is all stuff we knew before the, the election. Was the time differential the between his looked at this? could thing
1: When was he ousted versus when he joined the board?
0: No, I'm saying the when so was to, Cho- to when was Shokin.
1: When was Shokin ousted versus when? Shokin
0: was ousted after Hunter Biden joined the board, but the the inquiry was about stuff that happened before Hunter Biden yes. was in the However. company. <laughs> okay, so, two
1: things about that though, because I mean, th- you have to question the ethics on two fronts, whether it's Biden shows up to his job as vice president and is overseeing the Ukraine thing and it's his responsibility to say, hey, child of mine, do not get entangled in business interests in this country where I obviously have some sway and some meaningful leadership pull. Or he needs to say, oh, you want me to work on Ukraine stuff? Well, my son s- is making money in Ukraine on... like he, It's not like he's he... He has some tie to that country in any meaningful way. I don't think that he even speaks the language. I'm 99% sure it's not like he's really an expert in this industry. And hmm, maybe that would not look great. So I need to recuse myself from, from that sort of connection. Like at, at some point in time, knowing all of what was happening, like, yes, this is also that we knew happened at the time, but knowing it in the context of just how connected Hunter was in that country. I think at the very least, I mean, put the impeachment inquiry aside or whatever, but like, that's just, those are legitimate questions about, about how the president has comported himself. And you should take great measures and great lengths to, to insulate yourself from accusations of, of corruption. And it's really difficult to separate Hunter and his father so deeply when Hunter's really only qualification is his last name.
0: Yeah, but that's that is stuff that has well long been known to the electorate. That's why we have elections. There's to the no electorate, evidence of did you know? There. Did you
1: know about did, how long have you known about Hunter Biden's yes charisma connections the sh- and
0: the Shokin stuff was litigated in the, the Trump impeachment, which once again to remind people, which was an incident where we had on tape uh, and the transcript the president of the United States pressuring the Ukrainian government to investigate Biden. This was discussed back then. The Senate Republicans have looked at it and didn't find any wrongdoing. The, even the press, the right-wing press, nobody has found evidence of a crime that Joe Biden has committed. People could say his judgment was off or whatever, but this is about an impeachment for information that has long been known. And again, like you'd have to believe that Daria Kellyanne, that Jan Tombowski, who is the ambassador of the EU to Ukraine, various U.S. government officials who aren't Joe Biden, the entire coalition of NATO, that all of these people were somehow looking out for Hunter Biden's interests, as opposed to, hey, being like, look, we have an interest in a non-corrupt Ukraine. So to me, it's like, it's not new information. There never has been a crime alleged. There was pretty simple explanation for what was going on, but we don't want to believe the simple explanation. We want to try to connect dots that have absolutely no evidentiary basis right now. Like to even call it circumstantial, is to be charitable. And this is what we're looking at right now. And so, you know, this is they their right. They have a right to do whatever. It's notable that McCarthy didn't have the votes to move forward with this, but decided to do so anyway, votes within his own caucus. And, you know, we'll see where it goes.
1: We will see where it goes. I'm just looking forward to <laughs> other people asking questions for my behalf.
0: AI regulation, Ricky, a lot going on in the world right now. But this week in Congress, we saw something pretty spectacular. Uh, and I don't mean spectacular necessarily in a good way, but spectacle being the sort of the key word here. You know, Bill Gates, Elon Musk's Altman, Zuckerberg, you know, basically CEOs of major tech companies and some other kind of related AI figures descended on Washington, D.C. for closed door meetings with Congress mm-hmm. and two thirds of the U.S. Senate showed up, which is unheard of. Uh, they don't even show up to their own hearings often. And they had what was billed a closed door and candid conversation about the future of AI. In looking at this, it's unclear if anything notable was agreed upon. As you're reading the tea leaves, does anything jump out to you from what they discussed or were alleged to discuss? because we don't have a full transcript of it?
1: No, but to give a little bit of a, um, like, a little bit of clarity of what these people were doing there. They were at basically a round table conversation and given three minutes each to explain their stances. Um, And Chuck Schumer organized this and said that he wanted direction rather than like directives from these industry heads. But it seems as though there's quite a bit of agreement that there needs to be some sort of regulation. Schumer says that he asked whether those that were there who include like people who are bullish and bearish on ai in general um tech gazillionaires and and innovators everyone raised their hand that they believe that there should be some degree of regulation um and that the topics that were at play seemed to be um talking about an independent agency to regulate this um transparency laws and also how to balance regulation with the obvious risk that that China is creating parallel technologies and potentially will be less um, handcuffed by their own personal ethics in winning this arms race effectively. Musk gave some quotes while he was there. He said that this might go down in history as being very important for the future of civilization. He also said that the key point was really that it's important for us to have a referee It was a very civilized discussion, actually, among some of the smartest people in the world. So I'm, I think, I'm not seeing anything that's so novel out of this meeting, except for the fact that that we're continuing to to talk about this, continuing to kind of all agree that something needs to be done. But I'm, I'm still a bit at a loss of what exactly that is. Actually, last night I did an event with Andrew Yang, and you know he was so ahead of like in the 2020 election cycle, he was ringing the alarm bells about this stuff and. And he thinks it's ridiculous that we're even at this point and haven't gotten further towards a solution here. But a guy came up to me afterwards who works in AI, and I apologize that I can't remember his name, but he told me um, that he thinks that one regulation that, in his opinion, it should be very obvious is that, and I hadn't heard this before, would be making it illegal for AI models to present themselves as human in a way that is... Ambiguous in any way, shape, and form, and that it needs to be programmed. Which apparently he says it can be. That any AI model needs to be programmed to openly and honestly present itself as an AI model and not anthropomorphize itself. And that that could um, having that sort of control early could dissuade a lot of dystopian kind of offshoots.
0: Yeah, I think that's a pretty sensible. I hadn't heard that before. That seems Neither. like a pretty sensible solution. Schumer indicated after this that they're months away from reaching any sort of deal, which everything just feels too slow. It seems like a best case scenario, they will pass a law kind of on the anniversary of, and this is an ambitious, they probably won't, but on the anniversary of the release of ChatGPT, it's crazy to think about we're not even a year into this. Mm -hmm. And this technology is moving so fast. Congress needs to move faster. And uh, our, you know, sort of counterparts are moving faster than us. So the EU passed or, or is poised to pass what's called the uh, AI Act, which does a whole bunch of things where we could talk about, but more importantly is uh, what we uh, are doing here locally. And Blumenthal, who's a Democrat, and Holly, who's a Republican, have come together and released a framework for a bipartisan AI bill, which makes some sense. It's, it's a one-pager they just released And it does a few things. One is it establishes a licensing regime that will be administered by an independent oversight body. Uh, And so this would have the authority to conduct audits of companies seeking licenses and cooperate with enforcement across law enforcement. It will monitor uh, and report on technological developments, yada, yada, yada. The second thing they're doing is um, ensuring legal accountability for harm. So basically creating causes of action arising out of AI. Uh, clarifies Section 230, and that does not apply to AI, uh, which is fascinating if you follow Holly's politics, as I wouldn't have expected to see that there. Um, The third thing it does is it defends national security and international competition. So uh, it utilizes things like export control sanctions and other legal restrictions to limit the transfer of AI models abroad. The most important thing here, I think, of all this is it promotes transparency. So it requires all these rules, which kind of gets to some of the stuff that you were talking about around when you have to disclose AI, when you have to disclose how your model works, et cetera. And then they have a whole, um, they have a paragraph about kids and protecting kids from AI. So these seem like the right bullet points. Uh, They're kind of general right now, uh, but I, you know, I, I don't expect more than that at this point. And actually in some ways general could be good if, if they pass a more general law, and kind of deal with the major questions, doctrines, concerns by basically giving kind of latitude to an agency to be set up to kind of take a general framework and turn it into an enforcement action, that would seem like the most sensible way to move forward here.
1: Yeah, I think um, I like the idea of an independent oversight body. I actually think this might be a test case because it's so novel and even the experts are so divided. I feel like you have these enormous gazillionaire shadowy figures in some backroom talking about this. I almost see that this is an issue that it's going to touch people's lives in a way that I don't think we can even fully understand the, the breadth of. And I would like to see if there was an independent oversight body, some consideration of doing more like direct democracy sort of approaches to how we govern this, because I think it's going to be impossible for anybody, no matter... How independent, no matter how how many people are on it, no matter whether they're they're directly elected or whatever. Like, I, it's going to be impossible to to understand how a technology that is this disruptive and this potentially universal in such a rapid clip will touch the typical person's live life. And I think it'll be different in in every career and every age group. And I I would like to see like some sort of like ballot initiative almost sort of stuff like where, where at some point I don't think how would you frame it? Well, I think if a challenge comes up, I, I think you could have a special election and, and directly have like a voting on a proposition. Like, does this regulation sound like something that you approve of? And, and, I think this is the sort of challenge where I definitely defer to respecting the wisdom of democracy. And I'd rather us go down that route, the route of expertise, because there really is an expertise in something as as rapidly developing and novel as this. I, I definitely would want to defer to the American public more often than not, or at least as often as is practical.
0: Yeah there there is it's worth mentioning there there are rules in place for government agencies who do certain types of rulemaking that is like an imperfect stand in for direct democracy it's like what's called like a public comment period where you know i, I know people who've been involved in this around education policy making specifically around charter schools where people kind of weigh in as a new rule is being crafted but i think what you're saying goes well beyond that obviously well beyond
1: that yeah, I
0: wonder, I, I'm not familiar enough with the mechanisms of, sort of direct democracy at the federal level and whether it's even possible. I'm sure a lot of our listeners would know, but I guess what you're saying is they should make it possible.
1: I think this should be a test case of making that possible. Yeah. Cause I just, no matter who you are or how great of a leader you are or how much you have a, a finger on the pulse of, of American society, I think it's just going to be so disruptive so quickly and in such diverse ways. So that's my thought.
0: It it does seem like there was some consensus around a need for a global regulator as well which is fascinating. That is going to be a lot harder to pull off uh, given the sort of the equities for national security and and even if they did create a regulator I I can imagine that you know certain countries like China would just ignore the recommendations or rules of that regulator. You know as they say there's no international law there's international suggestions. <laughs> And mm-hmm. you know, one last piece, the most important part of this, obviously, is that Zuckerberg and Musk were in the same room, Ricky, and they were on opposite sides of the dais. So they, uh, whoever was in charge of the advance for this was smart enough to keep those two away from each other so we didn't get any chest pounding.
1: Do you think if there was a fistfight match that happened that we would know about it? Would someone leak it?
0: I think we would know about it. I think Musk was smart enough to know he you know, Musk ain't training the way Zuckerberg is. I feel like those two are (laughs) living two different lifestyles. And I think he, he, you know, Zuckerberg is like training with true MMM fighters and doing like a Murph every couple of days or whatever. There's no value judgment. It's like they're different priorities, right? Like, and, and Musk is running multiple companies. He's somebody who like is very upfront about his sort of fluctuations in his own health. Like, I think he looked at that and was like, one person's taking it more seriously than the other, and I'm not going to subject myself to it. And he kind of did his own Muskian way to get out of it. By the way, have you started the book on Musk? I just started it, the the Isaacson no. book. Mm-mm.
2: It's
0: very interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. Well, I'll report um, back I to won't the audience. Get, I, I won't get sucked
1: into a, a Musk debate. I think we've had plenty of those for our listeners. I'll spare them.
0: That wasn't a knockout. I think, you know, th- that to me is to acknowledge their priorities, not to say one's a better person or not, like to be like one person's clearly training MMA, like pretty consistently and one isn't. So, you know, mm-hmm. to be clear, like I have a lot of problems with Musk, but his lack of MMA knowledge is not one of them. Well, Ricky, I imagine you have something to say about this, uh, this Fifth Circuit ruling against the Biden administration.
1: Yeah, I think this is a, I'm surprised there's not been more attention paid to this case, but I think this is a pretty enormous victory for free speech, especially as it relates to on social media, which happens to be related to COVID in this instance, but I don't think necessarily needs to only be related to COVID and its implications. Um, But this is a Fifth uh, Circuit Court ruling that came out on Friday in favor of complainants, including... Uh, Jay Bhattacharya, who is a Stanford epidemiologist, and was a co-author of the Great Barrington Declaration. If you remember that, the dark days of October of 2020, um, which was co-authored by three three professors—Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford—like um, very respectable, apolitical people who advocated for a more focused protection approach to COVID and and protecting. Elderly people or people that were at risk and allowing for a, a sensible and cautious reopening for the rest of society in order to mitigate some of the, the damages and learning losses, etc. And I think a lot of what they said it turned out to be pretty prophetic. But as it turns out in the Twitter files, um, kind of revelations about what was going on behind closed doors, Bhattacharya, uh, among other people who tried to share the Great Barrington Declaration, were pretty systematically suppressed by social media companies. And what this case specifically says is that the Biden administration, the CDC, the Surgeon General, the FBI, a variety of federal agencies effectively created that censorship environment by going to social media companies, by flagging these, you know, whether it's Bhattacharya or others, this is kind of like a a mass suit. He's just someone standing in for them, for them. And essentially saying, this is COVID misinformation, or this is dangerous information, or we don't like this. And hanging the potential of unfriendly regulatory measures over their heads or effectively scaring these companies into censoring on behalf of the government by wielding shadowy power over them. So the the court found that um, that the plot, quote, this is a quote three-judge panel, the platforms in capitulation to state-sponsored pressure changed their moderation policies and that they, the Biden administration, among other federal agencies, engaged in a years-long pressure campaign on social media outlets designed to ensure that censorship aligned with the government's preferred viewpoints. So huge First Amendment implications. There's definitely going to be, or very likely going to be an appeal, and I think this could end up at the Supreme Court in the end, but... Think this is a, a pretty huge deal.
0: Yeah, and the, the the issue here, the sort of legal nuance here is this thing called the government speech doctrine, which is a muddled area of law, essentially saying, like, what is the government's right to speech, given the fact that the First Amendment very explicitly is protecting citizens against the the government infringement on their right to speak. So it's like, well, is the government does the government also get the cover of the First Amendment or are they only the people who are subject to the, the sort of enforcement uh, of the First Amendment? And it's tricky. like It's not obvious where the court has been on this. And so um, there's this famous case called Russ versus Sullivan from 1991, which was all about uh, federal, there was a ban on doctors who received federal funds from discussing abortion with patients. And the Supreme Court said that was a that was a uh, allowable prohibition and Rehnquist at the time who was the chief justice said the government can selectively fund a program to encourage certain activities. It believes to be in the public interest without at the same time funding an alternative program, which seeks to deal with the problem in another way. There was another case called uh, livestock marketing association from 2005 where the government required beef producers to contribute money to support a generic advertising program for beef. Um, and that was allowed Uh, But there are other cases where the court has gone the other way. So in this case called Velasquez, the court invalidated a federal law that prohibited attorneys who received money for legal services from challenging existing welfare laws. So basically they said, if you receive money from the government, you can't challenge welfare laws. The court wrote that legal services programs were designed to facilitate private speech, not promote a government message. So it's tricky. David Souter, who is a former Supreme Court justice you know, has said that he thinks that this is a very muddled area of law. All that said, there's complicated questions whenever the government's involved in speech. I think in this case, the court got it right. I think it was a, it was a little bit tricky because they, by the court's own admission, they didn't have like explicit threats. But mm-hmm. what they said was there was a context uh, around the communication with these social media companies where the threats were implied and I think that's right. Uh, I and think so I so think too. they were, I'd w- I rather have them err on the side of slapping down government in this
1: case. I would also say, in terms of the context of prior rulings, the implications of this one like, yes, it's one COVID doctor who's got a huge following. I mean, I have a remarkable amount of respect for him. It's not a slight in any way, shape, or form, but like, it the implications here are so massive because it's not just, one professional or or one context in which someone can't say something, it's the unprecedented ability of a government agency to potentially shape the public square, which has been digitized and privatized in a way like that's just unparalleled in history. That will continue to be the case. I think our our communications and our meaningful expression will become more and more online, and this is a very important precedent to set that. I mean, by proxy, they were, especially in a lockdown when you can't even go out and stand in some public park and have a protest or something. Like the, The importance of setting this precedent now and early in the social media days, I mean, these private companies have a lot of benefits from Section 230 to the fact that we allow them to censor speech at their own discretion. And I think they should continue to enjoy all of those factors, but they're getting... I think they were getting a lot of the blowback during the pandemic and um, especially in the past couple of years on the censorship front, but then weirdly came out looking somehow better as a result of like the Twitter files and stuff. Like it's, it's definitely obvious that there was more of an internal struggle, that there was more governmental pressure placed upon them. And I think that certainly a lot of conservatives or people who felt that they were being censored felt, I mean, I can say myself personally, I don't think I've ever had a censorship issue, but I definitely was placing more blame at the feet of big tech leaders who had an ideological agenda. And I think that this is this whole discovery process of the Twitter files and, and, um, these court rulings is demonstrating that actually they were trying to, deal with this this kind of looming threat or concern that they had about how the government would retaliate against them and how they might potentially be held liable for things that are truly beyond their control. So I think this is a, a the precedent is enormous. The implications could not be larger in the age of social media. And I find this to be a, a very relieving result. But again, I think this could become a Supreme Court case.
0: What's fascinating to me is, They distinguished, the court did, this case from this, I didn't even know about this. There's a case involving Senator Warren and RFK Jr., where Warren asked Amazon to modify its algorithm to make Kennedy Jr.'s book harder to find. And the court said, actually, that was fine because this court, the one who issued this ruling, they said that was fine because Warren didn't have authority over them. She didn't have regulatory authority over them, which I find odd because yes, she might not have been on the right committee, but she ultimately would be able to vote. Now, I think the Warren one is fascinating because should a senator have the the ability to ask a company to do that? I think probably yes. Like If they then start to punish the company for not doing that, that's probably illegal, but if they are in the public square. They are engaging in a debate, right? If Warren's like, hey, I actually think Amazon is promoting stuff I don't like. Like, you probably want to allow for that, right? It's like like how many, for instance, senators weighed in on Bud Light or whatever, right? Like we want to like I don't love what they had to say, but I think they have a right to say it. Now, if they follow up and punish Bud Light, like perhaps, you know, DeSantis might have done in Florida the last time I checked or tried to with the pension fund or something, that becomes a first amendment issue. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is why I, I think this is a little tricky. I, and once again, I think that they did the right thing here, but I do think it gets a little tricky when you talk about what authority somebody has or not and how you have evidence that they're exercising it or not.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that there's no excuse for Warren doing that, but I agree that there is a a meaningful differentiation here. And I think it, it could not have been clearer that there was a, kind of a nice company you have there nice cozy regulations you have mm-hmm. there coming from these uh, government agencies i mean yeah it's it's really profound like how how much came out of for whatever we have to say about musk and and how he's handled twitter i think he's done an enormous service by opening up the twitter files and allowing this stuff to come to light because i i i think this will meaningfully change the way that our digital town square functions and how how speech is regulated. And, and like right now, it's it's people on like COVID skeptics and people on the right who are benefiting from this, I would say by and large, but easily in any sort of situation going forward, this could, the, the tides could flip or social media sites on the right could start censoring people on the left or like this is an apolitical argument. And I wish in a sense, I'm, I'm thrilled to see that Bhattacharya was vindicated because I think he was remarkably principled and um, right about a lot of what happened in in covid but i almost wish that this was less of a lightning rod sort of topic because this can protect anyone's speech in any sort of circumstance going forward under any administration in a way that i think is very very important
0: yeah and I, and you know this is not this segment but i do actually believe that that censorship is coming the other way too like if you look at disney or you look at bud light or whatever but i think you know bodacharia it's worth mentioning here That my position on Bhattacharya, based on what I know about him, is he absolutely should not be censored. But he also, to me, is no hero. He's somebody who's made claims, some of which have turned out to be correct, and many of which have turned out to be very, very wrong. I'll quote David Wallace-Wells from earlier this year. Uh, He wrote the following. Dr. Bhattacharya, for instance, proclaimed in the Wall Street Journal in March 2020 that COVID-19 was only one-tenth as deadly as the flu. In January 2021, he wrote an opinion essay for the Indian publication, The Print, suggesting that the majority of the country had acquired natural immunity from infection already and warning that a mass vaccination program would do more harm than good for people already infected. Shortly thereafter, the country's brutal Delta wave killed perhaps several million Indians. In May 2020, Dr. Bhattacharya suggested that the virus might kill around 5 and 10,000 people infected when in fact the true figure is one or 200 and that COVID was on its way out in Britain. At that point, it had killed 45,000 Britons and would go on to kill 170,000 more. And final sentence here, the following year, Dr. Bhattacharya made the point about the disease in the US that the pandemic was on its way out on a day when the American death toll was approaching 600,000. Today it's 1.1 million and growing. Now, I don't Think everything David Wallace Wells said there is a slam dunk, but I do think like that debate between Wallace Wells type figures and Bhattacharya, what is a COVID death, what's dying with COVID, all this is really important. But I do think like any fair reading of Bhattacharya is that he he has gotten some things wrong, some very important things wrong, and sometimes when I'm looking at this. And, and, and by the way, I think he has a right to say what he's saying. He should not be censored. And I think the people who have the opposite of, of, you know, more restrictionist policies have a right to say what they're saying. But I think they're both afflicted with a sense of arrogance and inability to admit when they were wrong. Uh, and there's this sense that, all right, like I'm the victim. Everybody's the victim. Like everybody I talk to on the left who is very restrictionist is like, look, you're murderers. And, you know, like, the, you know, what about ivermectin? What about hydro, you know, hydroxychloroquine? You know, what about the claims that Damar Hamlin you know, had a cardiac arrest because he had a COVID vaccine? What about all these crazy claims that have turned out to be false or exaggerated? Uh, and they play the victim. And then I see people like Bhattacharya, who's like, yes, shouldn't have been restricted, but also is by no means a prophet here either.
1: Yeah, I did not come to this debate prepared to counter this with all the things that he got right necessarily or to evaluate the merit of his claims. I think the point being that and, and I will follow up with receipts if we want to do a follow-up on that front. But, but you did point- say he
0: was more right than wrong. So that's what I was responding to. You no, know, that he, was, that he was right he had, about a lot.
1: He, I think he was remarkably right early on about this focus protection situation and the fact that that was, I mean, that's where we inevitably ended up in in the end kind of landing. But anyways, the point being, I, I think he was an interesting and different he was, he was introducing a different way of, of approaching this. I mean, he effectively was advocating for what Sweden did here in America. And, you know, right and wrong. I mean, we've all been right and wrong and we can go through all the lists of the things that the federal agencies who were attempting to censor like got things wrong too. And the point being, he, he could be saying that COVID's not real and that... Anthony Fauci made it in his basement and he should still be able to say that. And I think that that's really the importance of, mm-hmm. of this ruling. Um, it's... Yep. I mean, he could have gotten every single thing wrong. He could have been liable for people dying or not. or not. I mean, it's, I'm getting very meta here, but like, on a certain point, it's just the the question is, does he have a right to say whatever the hell he wants to say? And does our... Does our federal government and do our institutions, our knowledge-producing institutions and the CDC and our health authorities, do they have the confidence in their own positions and their own authority and their own lines of communication with the American people to tolerate dissenting views pr- from people who are or are not experts? And if not, then what's up with that? And why are they, they using the cudgel of private industries to affect? A, a, a censorship regime of dissenters. And I think that's a really profound question. Yeah. And I think um, I think this is a really satisfying answer to folks like me who think that that should not be the case.
0: I'll just say before we move off of that that I, I just agree with you. like I, and I think like the question then becomes once we've protected our free speech, the question is, well, what do we do with this right that we have? And there's a really interesting piece that was teased recently, that i think has not been fully published by robert post who is my constitutional law professor in law school where he's all about like he he says the following he says the way i understand is that freedom of speech has not been a principal commitment but has been used instrumentally to attain other political ends and he basically talks about how like it's it's kind of like a it's a it's a retreat often more than a commitment to other, you know, other people who you disagree with, which is obviously the spirit that you and I are coming together in this conversation, all conversation. And basically what he's challenging us to say is don't just stop at the right, but think about the, like what the right is meant to serve, which is the right is meant to serve a conversation that helps our democracy, that helps our country, that helps our cities, towns, etc. cetera. And so this, the question is not just, do you have the right we need to protect it. But then what do you do with that, right? And now the question is, and this is true Jay Bhattacharya and anybody else, is like we have a duty to be as accurate as we possibly can, to admit fault as quickly as we can, move off of it, listen to people with different opinions, uh, and just try to exercise a sense of just you know generosity of spirit in the public square. And what he writes in that piece is like he's worried that that doesn't exist. Uh, and that like we're, we're talking about a right divorced from the very goals of that right. Uh, and I, I'm persuaded by that, but the first step is the right. Let's have the right, uh, and that's why I, I'm sympathetic to this decision.
1: And are you sympathetic to Prager U's growing influence in K to twelve education, Robbie?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think anybody who knows me knows where I'm going to come out on this one. But the background here is that there is this uh, conservative organization, Prager U. Uh, that has multiple sort of entities to it. But one element of it is, an, is a nonprofit uh, education arm that by its own admission is, quote, a free alternative to the dominant left-wing ideology in culture, media, and education. Uh, and Prager, you Kids uh, content features videos that cover topics like historical events, figures, religious, biblical figures, America's system of government. And Prager has said, quote, we are in the mind-changing business, so they are like anybody who listens to PragerU or has looked at their content, it's pretty clear that they are deeply ideological. And over the summer, um, state uh, education officials in Florida uh, approved PragerU content for schools. Uh, and then this past week, the Oklahoma Department of Education announced that they have an ongoing partnership with PragerU. They were kind of like light on details about what the partnership entails, but it it's kind of assumed from the announcement that they basically will be investing resources in getting this out to schools. So it yeah. seems on the reading of it that it might be a step further than Florida. And as we'll get to, I have some problems with this in in isolation, but especially problems with it when it's coupled with some of the things that some of these states like Florida have done uh to limit the reach of curriculum they disagree with. So Ricky, where do you come out on this?
1: Yeah, so it's still kind of reading the tea leaves on the Oklahoma situation. Um, the um, Education Association there condemned it publicly and said that it's, it's, quote, deeply concerning that the State Department of Education would even endorse this unbedded, non-evidence-based material, blah, blah, blah. But did note, which I think is important, that districts are not required to use this. So, and also that parents can opt out even if they do use it. So I think that's that's definitely an important context um i would say i think in isolation and not in connection with the government i understand what prager u was doing i think that it's completely legitimate and very much a concern of a lot of parents that there's a an ideological tinge in some of the education that they're getting in in classrooms and that that parents who want an alternative sort of curriculum or alternative viewpoints and and things to share with their their children should have the opportunity and platform to do so. I don't think I I'm not aware of anything that they've produced that is like like they're not like an extremist group by any stretch. I would say they're just like a kind of classic pro-America, you know, clearly conservative right-leaning, patriotic institution and that's that's their MO and I think that's the right of parents to present that to their children if they so please. I don't like the idea and I, I I, I understand their desire to want to like counter what I think is largely a left-leaning political bent that comes out of institutions like, like educational schools and stuff. And, and that can kind of trickle down, but I don't like the idea of fighting I don't like the idea of of a school district adopting it necessarily. Like, I don't think it's just fighting intrusive politicalization of education with intrusive politicalization of education. And that's something that I I struggle with. So, yeah. I know you're going to pull the most salacious things that you can find out of hours and hours (laughs) of content. I'm well aware. I'm I'm fully prepared. I just,
0: I want to quote to you. What Prager himself said is, "Which they're in the mind-changing business, right? This is an organization that is explicitly committed to indoctrination. So they can anybody can accuse me of cherry picking or whatever, and the, and the cherries are sweet, <laughs> but but that that is this is an organization that is explicit about its aims, and it comes into it comes in the context of bills like the Stop Woke Act, which bans the teaching of anyone." Uh, anything that makes students quote feel guilt, anguish, or other forms of psychological distress. Obviously, there was also the DEI bills that you know banned the use of public funds for DEI. And so, on one hand, they're they're banning anything that has any left wing tilt to it, but then promoting, allowing, perhaps funding stuff that has a right wing tilt. That to me feels wrong. Like if you're going to be neutral, no, be I neutral. Agree. But let's look at it. Here's a, here's a, I agree. here's okay. a Frederick Douglass lesson. We're gonna look at two parts of this, Ricky. The first part is about the protesters. Not sure what this is doing in a Frederick Douglass lesson, but let's listen. This is Leo and Layla's History Adventures with Frederick Douglass.
3: That's right, Bob. Despite some violence and destruction by some of our angrier activists, we're seeing mostly peaceful protests. Protesters are demanding that the police be abolished. Well, Clint, these local activists want to abolish the police. They're claiming systematic oppression and want the U.S. system torn down. What is going on? Things are so weird right now. I know. Mrs. Calder gave us an assignment today about being activists for justice. Isn't Mrs. Calder your math teacher? Yeah. We learn math, but we spend a lot of time learning about the stuff they talk about in the news. That's weird. Isn't math class supposed to be for math? Why is everyone so
1: angry? Are are they burning a car?
0: So this is the setup. Look, and I actually think it's kind of funny, but I think the Lila's setup is so
1: beast. What did she? What did she say that was so wrong?
0: Well, okay. it's it's the context. Because so here's what's going to happen. The next part of this video is they go back in time and they start talking to Frederick Douglass. Okay, so remember what they said. Why is everybody so angry? There's activists, right? What does abolish even mean, right? This is the framework that they start with. Major questions about why that's in a history lesson, even if I think they're funny and they raise some interesting questions. The second part of this video is a conversation they have with Frederick Douglass. Let's listen to a little bit
3: of this. Along with independence and democracy, it's probably America's biggest deal. There was no real movement anywhere in the world to abolish slavery before the American founding. Slavery was part of life all over the world. It was America that began the conversation to end it. But Leo is correct that big problems need to be approached very carefully. Have you kids heard of William Lloyd Garrison? No, nope. He's an abolitionist like me, and he and I used to be friends, but we aren't any longer. We don't agree how to solve problems. William refuses all compromises, demands immediate change, and if he doesn't get what he wants, he likes to set things on fire. Sounds Sounds familiar. familiar. Sounds like you know the type. Yeah, we've got that type in our time. So, you're trying to work for change inside of the American system. Precisely, Layla. Our system is wonderful, and the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. We just need to convince enough Americans to be true to it. And people like Garrison don't just want slavery abolished, but the whole American system? You are correct. His approach is called radical. (laughs) So, what they're doing is, they're promoting a really
0: really suspect reading of America's role in leading to the abolishment of slavery. You know, reminder to everybody that the 13th Amendment wasn't ab- uh, uh, ratified until 1865, at which point Britain, yeah, Mexico, England was Canada, already there,
1: you know, yeah. Name no. it. Yeah, that's Name a
0: group. So it's like a very weird reading of history, but then they connect it back to, this is the mind-changing business. To so be like, oh, Gar-, by the way, very unfair to Garrison. Uh, and also I think a wholly suspect also reading of, how douglas would read garrison even though they did in fact have a fight i'm pretty sure douglas wouldn't want this characterization but i could none of us can know we can't go back in time to ask him but basically they're being like well, there are unreasonable they, people Leo out there want like to be can, radicals probably. yeah <laughs> but you get what i'm saying this is a project to have a certain spin on history which is very controversial and to reminder to, to new audience members that we did a whole thing poking holes at 1619 Project back then. So this is not specific to this. Like, is like any historical revisionism with a, a political aim should be viewed with skepticism. But this goes further than just interpreting this moment in a way that's suspect. It then tries to connect it back to current events and the way people are viewing their contemporary political opposition today. Uh, and that's where I think this is a sophisticated and very flawed exercise in curriculum and why we should you know, be careful about how we deploy in our public schools.
1: Yeah. And to be consistent, like the 1619 project was creating curriculums and stuff. And like, this is definitely a like fighting might with might sort of intrusion into the education system. I agree. I think it's a reaction to that sort of reality. And I am consistent in thinking that these sort of political or these subjective reads of history and, and the kind of evident ideology creeping in on, on either side of this debate are not appropriate in the context of a government institution. But I again like teach your kids the 1619 project or have them watch this on their own time. I don't care. It's not my business. But yeah, I think it's just when the when it becomes when it gets any sort of governmental stamp of approval, that's concerning. So I agree. I'll remain consistent on this one.
0: All right, let's go to some voicemails. First one up is about the military from our friend Jamie from Knoxville.
1: This is Ricky. You've reached the lost speed. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the town.
2: Hi, this is Jamie from Knoxville again, still loving the podcast. I called a comment on the segment on failing military recruitment rates. I was in the Army from 2010 as a human intelligence collector, and working. In Iraq and Afghanistan, um, you can juxtapose the sophony of American society to the soldier's creed which we shouted at the top of our lungs in basic training while stabbing dummies with bayonets and we shouted at the top of our lungs uh, on rock marches seeing cadence about blood watering the green grass democracy. Um, and then you actually get to a war zone. Uh, so we did some very interesting things uh, throughout the early 2000s but the military environment provided enough justification that you could do your job and serve your country and worry about all that later. Um, so as of 2023, I see three really distinct problems, uh, that causes the recruitment issues. Uh, the first being finding young adults who believe American values are worth fighting for. Uh, American our military have had, uh, have done itself no favors as far back as Vietnam, but even a t- September 2022 YouGov poll of young people, uh, cite that they are not satisfied with the state of U.S. democracy, and there is a huge decline in overall patriotism. It's difficult to find recruits for warfare among those steps even if American universities and target demographic demographics, but uh that sentiment shared amongst urban and suburban east countrywide. The second problem is when I had issues with myself. Um, it was the reason I chose to leave the military. You get to see up close and personal how American diplomacy is executed. If you're lucky, you just go do your job and you never even know how the sausage is made. If you want to move up, work on strategic missions, uh, you quickly see the corruption from vehicles we are forced to use that aren't even rated for the environments we fight in. To poorly designed IT systems imposed on us because some general wants to sit on the board of a defense contracting company to the allocation of resources that have less to do with needs and politics. Um, and the final problem is the reality of prolonged warfare. We've all heard of the 22 veterans that commit suicide every single day. There are a lot of factors that go into that number, but a lot of young people already feel like the cars are stacked against them, hit their own very high suicide rates. Um, when my overly anxious 21 year old stepson said he was thinking of joining the military, I argued against it primarily for that reason. Maybe he could deal with seeing the dead bodies of children, losing a battle buddy, or the general horrors of war, but could he deal with participating in all of that, only to later find out he helped recruit, arm, and train people who will become the next ISIS, all because stateside politicians and intelligence officials never learned their lesson. If we want a strong standing military, maybe us politicians and top military and intelligence brass need to ask themselves how they can be worthy of the country they purport to serve so the sacrifices we ask of our young men and women in combat are not in vain. Thank you all very much. Continue your great job. I'll keep listening.
4: Take care.
1: Bye. That was exceptionally thoughtful, and thank you for your service and for your input. I think totally well received. And things that I definitely heard um, different versions of through the research of this article and um, and your firsthand experience is really enlightening. I think I definitely agree that there's a tension of getting young people to believe in an American democracy and promoting our values and and defending them, but also um, the increasingly evident reality that sometimes that's not really what we're sending men and women who serve to do. And um, a lot of jaded young people and understandably so. And I I think it's a, a really fundamental question. And aside from the kind of easy stuff to poke fun at, like the woke recruitment ads or the like fact that people can't meet the fitness requirements like that's the more fundamental question to ask and i think you put that very well
0: all right one more
4: hi this is stephanie from orange county california and i just want to say i had of this policy at school of choice until i moved out here and when i did i i was just amazed at how amazing it was for us so i'm surprised to hear that it is a political issue for us we had a daughter who went through covid in middle school extremely stressful lots of panic lots of anxiety got picked on Sort of very artistic, you know, not really good at anything physical <laughs> at all. And we were able to go to school of choice, uh, open houses. So we went to the one that's right in our neighborhood, the high school. And it's an awesome school, a huge school, lots of athletics. The open house is basically a pep rally on the field. And they had all the teams come out and did all the cheering and, like, showed us demonstrations of their athletics and talked about what great programs there were. And it's a good school, but they just obviously heavily emphasize athletics. Uh, we went to the one that's uh, six miles away for their open house. And it was done in an auditorium. It was put on by the art student. There was filmed by the film club there. It was all written by the theater department. Um, I, and this is like two, This one school is thousand students. The other one is 2,000 students. And they both were like big schools. Both of them do well in academics. Both of them have great arts programs. But you were able to just sort of see the school vibe and the emphasis and where you might feel better as a student. by going to these open houses, we ended up just so relieved. She picked the arts, the, the more arts and entertainment focused one and has had an amazing turnaround. Like went from like all FCCs to like, like all A's and B's and in even the STEM classes love STEM. Probably going to go into STEM now, but feels comfortable and like accepted and in a good fit school for her. So the school of choice thing wasn't about us getting out of our terrible, terrible neighborhood, and it wasn't about us getting away from a certain kinds of kids. It was just about finding the school that was really right for her, and it was amazing. So whenever I hear it come up in like political discussions of oh this is bad or pain, and this this is bad, I can't wrap my head around it because for us it was just such an obvious good program to do. Uh, that's
0: it. Well, thank you for this voicemail. Of course, I agree. I don't have much to add to that. Anybody who's listening to this podcast for a long time, uh, knows that this is, you know, this is what it's about. You know, kids are different. Parents are different. And the quality is different between schools. And sometimes the quality changes throughout the course of a kid's K-12 experience and parents and kids should be able to adapt to that. Thank you everybody for listening. Uh, Remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Our voicemail is 321 570 That's 321 570 We have a new episode coming next Tuesday. Have a great weekend, everybody.